0: Hey, folks, Alex Shaw with your Risk Matters podcast. I'm sitting here with Steve Went from uh, Blue Sky, hang gliding out here in Manquin, Virginia. Steve, thanks for uh, taking a little bit of time this morning to speak with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's, hang gliding is an exciting activity. It's uh, done in a lot of places people wouldn't expect. You know, everybody wants to see or thinks they're going to see it in the mountains or on a hill, but the flatlands have slowly uh, become a hang gliding mecca. Florida 30 years ago, you didn't think of hang gliding, and now it's a place where many people go because we can put hang gliders in the air without running off a hill.
0: Yeah, what you so I was down in Florida a year and a half ago, and I was blown away by the number of guys I saw hang gliding, but not just that, it was all guys in like their 60s and 70s. And I just thought, man, that is a pretty athletic endeavor to be pursuing when you're in your 60s and 70s. Something you said right before we press record though. I didn't connect the dots on that, but you, you described why a lot of your clientele are in that, in that range.
1: Yeah, you know, everybody would perceive something like hang gliding as this uh, young, adventurous male kind of thing. But my average student is probably in the 55 to 65-year-old range, somebody who's maybe always loved aviation, maybe got a taste of it when they were a kid, but, you know, marriage, kids, life got in the way. And... Uh, you know, now they're finally having a little more free time, a little more stability financially. And, uh, you know, they're coming to me now and saying, you know, am I too old to do this? And it's, <laughs> no, you are not. You're the average age, you know. And uh, so, yeah, they're starting in their 50s and 60s mm-hmm. quite often.
0: Wow. So, And and you mentioned that you, you grew up in Pennsylvania and you got mm-hmm. started when you were 16. Tell me how, <laughs> who got you started? Why well, did you even pursue that? you know. I, I
1: used to race motocross at the age of 13, 14, and 15 years old. You know, these small tracks, my parents signed the paperwork and let me do it. And I loved jumping through the air. And I soon realized that uh, I couldn't go much higher or farther than I was doing without maybe, maybe uh, having more risk than I wanted. Mm. So uh, I, back in those days, there was no Internet to look it up, but I saw pictures of hang gliders. And I thought, wow, that looks like a really mm. cool way to get in the air. And then I saw a a quick clip of a video where somebody actually bolted a hang glider, a very small one, to a motorcycle and was going off these little jumps, but gliding, you know, 10 times farther than they Mm -hmm. would have without a wing. And I thought, wow, that really looks neat. So uh, my father, when he was younger, had his pilot's license. He liked aviation. And we saw this ad for my gosh, I think it was like three or four hundred dollars. You could buy a hang glider as a kit in the mail. Oh, wow. It was kind of crazy. All the things that we would tell people today, don't ever do. But we got this kit in the mail, put it together in one afternoon, and it had a little pamphlet that came with it and said how to fly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and thank God <laughs> I didn't have a, Yeah, thank goodness I didn't have a really big hill near my house. We just walked it across the street and started running down this little slope. And I got really good at running with it, and every now and then I'd get to the bottom of the hill, and I'd swear one of my feet missed the ground. I was flying. Yeah. And it was exciting, but I took a long time till I actually went to bigger hills, and I started finding other people that were actually flying, and got some feedback from them. And it took me about two years to do in a hang glider what we could probably teach people to do in two weeks here. Mm. But uh, you know, we we got started from that, and then eventually I found other gliders that were going to be a little more useful than the one I had it was it was barely flying and uh hang gliders were just coming out now this was the mid-70s and uh hang gliders were just kind of coming out and being commercially produced and you know the the cost was affordable at that time although you know seven or eight hundred dollars for a hang glider was still a lot of money to a kid not even in college yet right but uh it, it gave me an opportunity and we started flying and I started driving to places up into New York and other places in Pennsylvania down to North Carolina on the Outer Banks, meeting more people that love to fly and slowly develop my skills, and soon I was flying off mountains, mm. and uh, it, it was pretty exhilarating uh, I bet to be is. up there. But back in those days, all we cared about was launching into the air and flying down and landing. Mm. The idea of staying up really wasn't in the back of my mind. I just wanted to fly, not hurt myself and land. And, um, you know, now it's 47 years later that I've been hang gliding. You know, I've had about 7000 flights and, uh, you know, I've I've been safe. So I'm, I'm glad to say that we've learned how to keep things safe. And uh, but you know back in those days, like I said, it was a couple of minutes in the air, and now I've I've had flights of over five hours, Holy altitude switch. gains to seven or eight thousand feet, uh, flown yeah for maybe forty miles in distance on some flights. But uh, you know, hang gliding in general has has evolved. It's come from what looked like kites to wings now that are you know pretty high tech and sophisticated. Hmm. And we have hang gliders now that'll fly 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. Wow. If you want to, but they'll still slow down to 17 or
0: 18 and allow it to be manageable to launch and land. Wow. So you mentioned that, you know, you bought this kit <laughs> and it's something you wouldn't do or advise anymore. What What was it about? I mean, so anytime you're engaging in like a risk, there's the introductory phase where you don't even know what the risk is. Well, yeah, right?
1: l- lack of knowledge was my only protection, maybe. I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, back then there really weren't many schools. Hmm. Uh, the guys who were out so-called being instructors and in hang gliding, they'd only been doing it a few months longer than me. Wow. So there wasn't a lot of professional help. Today, that's not the case. Now there are schools that have, you know, instructors like myself that has have decades of experience. They have programs that are proven. Uh, and you're teaching people not just how to fly the wing, but, you know, how to eliminate a lot of the problems. You know, just knowing that, hey, it's the wind's blowing this direction at this speed today. Maybe I shouldn't fly, mm. you know. Or I woke up this morning and I'm really tired and maybe being in the air dealing with this isn't the best thing. You know stress levels, um, but you know the conditions of the weather, whether it be wind speed, uh, wind direction, the vertical mixing of the air uh, that makes air unstable. Learning about all that is all part of learning to fly and and be safe.
0: Yeah. So there is. You know, anytime you start off something new, I mean, there's so much complexity to what you do, right? That it it does. I'm sure you're still learning. And a lot of the avenues that I speak to folks in. They'll say, you know, I'm forever a student and you have to stay forever curious because conditions are the number of ways that they can mix and match together are really countless. So blending your experience over the years with other folks. I mean, tell me a little bit about just leaning into learning from other people, how that took shape, what the form looked like and and why that was important to you.
1: Yeah. You know, (laughs) we started off on very small hills and then you just see people doing the bigger things and you think, well, that guy really must know what he's doing. And Mm, he maybe, maybe. did, maybe (laughs) he didn't, Uh, maybe he was just willing to take more risk than somebody else. So, you know, you kind of wanted to get really good at what you were doing down low before you worked your way up high. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of it from watching people I'd learned by reading, um, but even when I started teaching people, I mean, you didn't have to be an expert to teach because you were teaching somebody that knew nothing. You could know, you know, as long as they knew less than you, you were teaching them. But even as an instructor, uh, you know, I learned from my own students every day. Every time I think I know everything about hang gliding, I am proven that it is not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, a student will do something different that I've never seen before. And I realize, okay, that was... That was on me. I should have said this differently, taught differently, exposed them differently to something else. So I have to be ready for uh, students to do all kinds of crazy things, maybe. Yeah. But we we do try to limit that as much as possible.
0: So what are if you reflect back on the evolution of where you started and what you've learned along the way, maybe personally, but also industry wide, would you? maybe share with us some of the things that have evolved ways of thinking that have changed of course the technology is going to advance mm-hmm. and you can speak to that a little bit as well but also just the, just as importantly as the technology and the equipment the the mindset that that you've embraced to Yeah, well I've put up doing with doing this for 47 years. What did you say? 47, 47 years, years yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've put
1: up with people telling me I must be crazy with a death wish my whole life with this mm. and I am the least crazy person I know. I'm very conservative. I don't look at hang gliding as uh, an extreme sport or activity. I just look at it as another way of recreational aviation. And, you know, it, it, you know, the old days of just hooking into a hang glider on a cliff when it's blowing 20 miles an hour and say, okay, let's see what happens. That's not how you do aviation, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. You, you definitely want to plan and, uh, you know, understand your equipment. And the equipment definitely, as you mentioned, has improved. You know, in the old days, the gliders barely glided. And now they're very sophisticated using different types of aluminum, carbon fiber. Sailing technology goes into hang gliding Hmm. quite a bit. Makes sense. Yeah, because all the cloths are kind of tested there. But, you know, a lot of gliders today, they're designed on computers. And we know what they're going to do before they even come out the door. It's Hmm. the cost that's really, you know, increased. I mean, hang gliders today are in the five dollars to $10,000 range for a good one. And even some high-tech carbon fiber ones can be over $20,000. Uh, so it's, it's not a quick and easy way to get into the sport financially, although there's a lot of good used equipment out there. But along the way, you know, you learn, um, you know, you watch people, you learn, you watch the weather, and try to put all the things together that play a role in what you're going to do that day with flying. Once one thing you quickly learn is that whatever the weatherman says may or may not be correct. <laughs> uh, you know we're always angry at the weatherman out here because he's right about half the time. Hmm. And you know the weathermen do a good job forecasting the overall weather, but for these forecasts to tell us what the wind's going to do on this little GPS point where we're at, where we're at. Uh, With wind velocity and direction, it's a challenge, you know, and Mm. they get it pretty well, but we depend on it. And when you're sitting in a powered aircraft on a runway and the wind's blowing five mile an hour in a certain direction, and then it changes just a little bit, it's maybe not that big of a deal. But when you're holding a 45 or 55 pound hang glider, two or three mile an hour wind change can be a radical Mm. difference. So, you know, we have to be much more aware of our surroundings and what the weather's doing than, than most pilots.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny, in, the, in speaking to the folks and in, in being involved in the whitewater community mm-hmm. like I am, you start to appreciate that, and the best guys I know, whether it's surfing or running rivers, are super adept and far more precise and accurate about predicting water levels mm-hmm. than even sometimes NOAA is. So they'll look at uh, numerous graphs and... Web pages and decipher based off of rainfall in certain areas when bumps are going to happen, you know, what conditions are going to look like they can anticipate with more precision in many cases than than the weather folks. And I think particularly, you know, weather folks, they're kind of speaking to a broad, a a wide audience. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking about this in almost a singular type of activity oriented mindset.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I get up every day and I look at three or four weather forecasts every morning, every afternoon, every evening, because we live and die by the forecast out here. And, you know, we're out here basically in a field where we've created a hang gliding air park that we tow hang gliders uh, anywhere from three or four feet above the ground to over 2000 feet. And when we're doing that, uh, you know, we definitely need to know what the wind's doing. But what you just said is exact. Um, The general forecast, the weatherman out there isn't talking to me as a hang glider pilot. He's talking in general about what the weather's doing. But, yeah, quite often I know in advance whether the next three days look pretty good, no matter what the weatherman says on the winds, mm. because it's a matter of, you know, the humidity, the whether it's low or high pressure, um, the direction, all these things that are going to occur. I've learned over the years sitting at this spot what days work better for me. Mm. And uh, it's not always that. Oh, if it's blowing five mile an hour, that's good. Mm. You know, it, it has to do with so many other factors involved. But yeah, the the weather, the wind, everything about it is such a variable. And every time the weatherman thinks he's got it all right, one little variable will change, and it. Changes all the other aspects mm-hmm.
0: along with it. So a couple questions off that: What does pressure and humidity have to do? How does that influence your your outlook for the day? And then maybe this is a, a strange one, but is wind? I wouldn't imagine it's the same ten feet off the ground as it, it is twenty. And how do you how do you <laughs> account for what the wind is a thousand feet up versus? Yeah. 500 feet. It's And, always and it does. Of-
1: you know, when we're teaching, of course, we're usually staying well below 20 feet, staying mm-hmm. low to the ground till they get good. So all we care about is the wind on the ground. And sometimes out here, you know, we've got 10 or 12 flags up, and the students are already confused because they've got, you know, they see these flags all blowing different directions, and they soon <laughs> right. learn that, wow, right. I thought if the wind was blowing from the north, it's just blowing everywhere from the north in this area. And they soon find that it can be blowing all different ways. Quite often, uh, the guys, they'll just say, look, can you knock all the flags down but one so we're not confused? <laughs> Said, no, we need this information. Hmm. But as we go up, the wind does change. It can change in direction, change in velocity. Um, the humidity in the air actually thins the air out. People are always saying, boy, that air is thick when it's humid. It's thick with water. It's thinner with air. So when oh. we have less oxygen or air moving in general, the wing has to go faster through that air mm. to create as much lift as it would do if the air was thick and dry.
0: I would have never thought about it that so way, but that makes it's, complete sense. You know, sense. when it's hot and yeah.
1: humid out here, you know, everybody gets tired sooner because they can't breathe as well. The wind doesn't work or the wing doesn't work as well. It doesn't produce as much lift. Or even the device that we use to tow the gliders aloft, which is a basically a small scooter engine. It's just parked and acts like a winch it doesn't produce as much horsepower. So there are a lot of things critical with uh, the humidity and the air pressure matters too. When, uh, when you have air that's heavy and pushing down, um, that heavy air actually suppresses rising air because it's pushing down on the mm. ground. And you, if you have lower pressure, then air is more easily going to rise. Now that up and a- up and down air doesn't affect us as much for training because we tend to train in the morning and the evening when the air is calm anyway. But for our afternoon pilots, basically the pilots that have now developed the skills to soar, uh, they want that rising air. You know, we'll tow them up to over 1,000 feet. They'll look for rising air, and sometimes they'll be able to take that rising air thousands of feet
0: in the air and stay up for hours at a time. Wow. So when you mentioned a few minutes ago that you'd had five-hour flights, so you're hang gliding for five hours. Five and a
1: half is my record, but we've had guys stay up here for over six
0: what kind of stamina does it take? You know, you you think about race car driving, and you go, "Well, you're just sitting around for you know however many hours." The reality is, those guys are RPMing with their heart rate at a very redlining mm-hmm. for hours. So the cardiovascular fitness is a really critical piece of high performing drivers. I mean, do you what kind of training do you have to do, or is it just doing the activity enough that? that yeah, it's hard to simulate being
1: in the air doing what we do without doing it. So there's there's not a lot of repetition on the ground. You spend a lot of time just doing short flights, developing those skills till the air will allow you to, to get those longer flights. But you are mentally busy the whole time. Mm. You are constantly monitoring, monitoring how the air is feeling to you as you're flying through it. What's my altitude? Where would I land right now if I was sinking and, and having to land soon? You're looking at fields on the ground. You're looking at maybe wind lines on the crops, wind lines on water mm. that show you wind direction on the ground. We're looking for birds that might be circling. If I see a bird circling, I'm heading over there. I'm going to join him if I can. If he's circling, he's probably climbing and lift. Sometimes we find lift and birds will come to us. They're not afraid of us. <laughs> Here comes a couple of you know turkey vultures they are coming over. Uh, encounters with birds are very interesting. I've had uh, big six, seven-foot bald eagles come up Wow. Very close to me, and take a look at you and fly away. Red-tail hawks. Um, it, it's very interesting to be up five thousand feet and see a monarch butterfly float by. Oh, and wouldn't he's have up imagined there. that at all. He, he's up there for the same reason I am. He's wow. gotten some lift. Or even stranger yet, a leaf from a cornstalk, and you're a mile yeah. high, and there it goes. <laughs> or you're a mile high and you smell something from the ground. Mm. You know, whether it be a cow pasture or whatever. Uh, being up there like that, it's pretty incredible. And and the view of course is the main thing. I mean, it's the visual of being thousands of feet in the air and the serenity of that. Sometimes for me, just going up in the evening and flying just for five minutes and staring at the sun setting is, uh. Just enough reliefs that it yeah. it just finishes the day, you know. That
0: that sounds incredibly meditative. I it mean, it that, can it, be one of the things I like about the activities I engage in, whether it's whitewater or surfing. In, in so many of these, the feeling that it gives you is actually of smallness, and and dare I say, almost insignificance. And, and, and people might think about that as, oh, that's an awful way to feel. To me, it's always a relief to go. You know what, man? This thing is so much bigger than me. I'm just a drop in the bucket. Any decisions I make are are important, but right-size your your perception of of life and just settle in that a little bit. That sounds like an incredible way to just end a day. I do want to speak a little bit to the comments you made about paying attention. So often when we have clients with accidents or injuries, incidents they've got, uh, kind of the first layer they'll say is, hey, the guy wasn't paying attention, which Mm -hmm. there's always more to the story than just the guy wasn't paying attention. And I think about the mental drain that I experience, whether it's between trail running and road running, right? Trail running, I'm looking at foot placement, so I don't roll an ankle. I'm looking Mm -hmm. at every single step I take. For hours on end, I'm looking at stones and rocks, and is that stone stable, or is it going to roll? Is it going to flip over when I step on it? The drain mentally from that is far more significant than just kind of zoning out and running on a sidewalk for Mm -hmm. a few hours. Similarly, friends I've got who cycle, We'll say you're staring at that front tire because when you're on a road bike, a little pebble can just completely, you know, destroy mm-hmm. your day. So tell me a bit about what it takes to stay in the moment and to be mentally aware and engaged for five and a half hours. I mean, I'm sure there are moments when you can kind of yeah. take a breath. But but how long can you do that before things start to slip and you you risk? putting yourself at a disadvantage.
1: Yeah, you're busy all the time. I mean, obviously, anytime you're near the ground, like launching and landing, you're extra busy Mm. uh, to take care of business there, to be safe on the ground. Once you get a lot of altitude, whether you've run off of a 3,000-foot mountain and all of a sudden had all that space below you, or whether you got towed to that point, um, either way, once you have a lot of altitude, you certainly have more time. We're always sinking in a hang glider at about 300 feet a minute, always, always unless we find air that's rising Mm -hmm. and going up. And that's what we're searching for. If you run off a mountain and there's wind blowing up the mountain, you probably automatically have some lifting air there and you stay near the mountain and rise up. Out here in the flatlands where we're towing, we tow up to 1,000 to 2,000 feet. And then we're looking for thermal activity, rising warm air. And if we find it, we have to circle in it. So Basically, if you don't find that air, you're sinking and you're thinking of landing right away. And I mean, it's right. not instantly, but on the way down, I have to put myself at the right place so that I can make a good, safe landing approach and land safely so we can tow up and do it again. Wow! If you're in the mountains, you might be launching and down below might be a small field surrounded by trees and you have to put the glider into that field and you only have one shot. So, you know, you've got to manage and stay busy with that. Granted, if I find lift and I'm slowly climbing, yeah, you, you're biding yourself more time to relax, to look around, to enjoy other aspects.
0: Hmm. So I like the imagery of that because it's so representative of, I think how work plays out for (laughs) like our clients you're always sinking towards an incident unless you're hyper aware of the opportunities that are necessary to perform in the risk. Mm-hmm. And in and, and, and the absence of that, it's a slow kind of evolution down into an incident that's just waiting to happen is, is one mm-hmm. of the guys we really enjoy speaking with says, you know, workers only trigger latent conditions that already existed in the mm-hmm. workplace that created the incident that they're not the incident themselves, the systems and, processes in place, all they did was trigger the latent condition. And unless you've got workers who are keenly aware of what to be on the lookout for the rising air, you're inevitably going to hit the ground, if you Mm -hmm. will. So I love that just is what what, what kind of resonated and hit me in that moment. And it it makes me feel uh, really keenly um, aware of how important it is you're on the lookout constantly for this rising air. So you don't Mm -hmm. actually get that much of a time to just kind of float around unless you're you know, looking to go down and land,
1: right? And sometimes that's the case. It, you know, you're in the air, and the air is not what you had hoped for, and might not even be nearly as fun as you had hoped it would be. Right. The air has a personality sometimes, where sometimes you wish you were on the ground. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's always something we have to look out for, and we tend to know that ahead of time. the The pilots who are really advanced and are considered really good pilots, they judge the wind better than the other guys. They watch the weather reports and maybe understand it better. They understand their glider when they're in it, how it responds better, but they make good decisions. Mm. When you're out flying, it's all about making decisions. The guys who make good decisions find the good air and can stay in it and rise. And the guys who make, you know, the wrong decision, they're in sinking air and they're on the ground and they have to try again. Mm. And it's that is managing your safety too when you're doing that, but it's also managing your fun and right. how much time mm.
0: you're flying. Interesting. Well, one thing you'd mentioned was, you know, folks will often, I mean, you hear of this and you go, you're, how many feet did you say you went up, 7,000 feet? I've five? been up
1: about 7,500. 7,
0: feet, and you're up there for five and a half hours at the at the longest you've mm-hmm. been. Um, a lot of folks, and what's funny is when I called you and, and asked if you'd be willing to sit down, you said, well, yeah, you know, I understand what you're trying to do, but but there's not a tremendous amount of risk in what we do. You know, we manage it pretty well. <laughs> And I hear that often from folks who I spend time with and who I do my various activities with who will, will, from the outside, people perceive you've got a death wish, you're an adrenaline junkie. But the way I heard it best was on this big wave uh, surfing movie that came out long ago, and and they essentially said, "No, no, no, we're not adrenaline junkies. We're masters of risk. Right. And I thought that was one of the more profound statements. So. Um, you've spoken a bit to that, but maybe outline for us what it's like to be a, a master of risk, if you will, in this Yeah, well, when,
1: when you're flying, there's no doubt you're looking for s- certain rewards that are so incredible you're willing to take that risk. Mm. And every time your feet leave the ground, yeah, there's going to be some risk involved. But I think, you know, just, just statistically out here at our flight park and most flight parks, they've learned to manage the risk pretty well by, you know, not flying when they shouldn't, you know, with the weather conditions. But just every little thing that goes into the flight, you've learned how to manage that because you don't do it big all at once. You know, I've talked to guys that skydive a lot and they said, yeah, we see here that you're learning to fly right low next to the ground. And I said, yeah, you can't you can't practice skydiving low. You know, you've got to go very high and take that what appears to be a much higher risk. Mm. Whether it is or not could be debatable. You know, if you're good at it and you understand everything, they, they reduce their risk as much as possible. Uh, here, we reduce the risk by flying very low to the ground until people master certain basic skills. And only then do we allow them to go higher, which might seem like they now have more risk. But sometimes in aviation, altitude is safety. You know, the, you get to a certain point where now I have more time to fix something before I'm back on the ground. But, uh, you know, we we generally stay very low until the basics are mastered. And then then we kind of work our way up from there.
0: Hmm. What would you say is the riskiest height to be at with the consideration too? there's this uh, climber, Alex Honnold, who says, you know, people he's, you know, free soloed El Capitan and. Um, and people will say, wow, you know, you're climbing this high. And he says, well, once you're above 20 feet, what does it matter? (laughs) Right, yeah. But but where's the kind of the riskiest layer, would you say, where you've got less time to react because you're not as high as you could be, but you're above that 20-foot or 15-foot threshold?
1: Yeah, you know, with what we do out here, since we're not running off of a mountain and we're towing up off of flat ground and going to land at the same height again, Probably in that two or three hundred foot range. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, fought, nobody wants to fall 50 feet, and like that other gentleman said, what is it? What's the point after a certain height? Um, if I'm much higher than three or four hundred feet, like I'm going to be wearing a reserve parachute, okay, and maybe above four or five hundred feet, I would have time to open that if the glider somehow failed.
0: So, is that that is par for the courses? Mm. You're wearing parachutes it, as you go up.
1: After we start going high, you know, below three or 400 feet, obviously, I don't want to, I don't want a problem there either. Chances of somebody getting their parachute out and open and saving them below a certain altitude would be very challenging. Mm -hmm. And especially for a student, they, they're just barely learning to fly. But once we start going up over 500 feet, we make everyone here wear a reserve and learn basically how to use it and deploy it. Interesting. Uh, So that gives us a second chance. But in all the thousands of flights here, we've done over 175,000 flights here at this flight park. And I've only seen a reserve come out one time. And even then, it wasn't even a necessity. It was not a broken glider. A pilot got a little bit in trouble, got nervous, and threw their chute. And I when I walked over to them, they were just standing on the ground, fine. I said, "Why'd you do that? You didn't need to." Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I panicked. Yes, <laughs> right. they did, mm. and they weren't. They didn't manage the risk at that time very well. But afterwards, it was like, "Well, at least I know it works." Right. You know, and it it did. Um, but yeah, it's rare that you see a parachute being thrown in hang gliding. Um, hang gliders rarely fail. It's a very strong aircraft for the speeds we fly. Uh, generally people are flying along efficiently at about 25 miles an hour. That's where we fly and get the best lifting abilities of the aircraft. So it's hard to pull a lot of G's and overstress the airframe at those slow speeds. Now, in really turbulent air or if a pilot makes the glider go faster than he should, he can do things that could damage it. So in general flying, we rarely see a structural failure that would need to have a parachute thrown. Hmm. The more common reason for needing it would be a pilot that chooses to do aerobatic maneuvers, which are never recommended. That's obviously more risk. Uh, But I guess the rewards must be very high for them to risk that. (laughs) I'm not into aerobatics, and we don't allow that here, but guys do it. Hmm. Uh, The other would simply be a mid-air collision. Hang glider pilots, like whenever you've seen a gaggle of birds circling under some lift and rising, Hang glider pilots do that too, and if you had twenty or thirty hang glider pilots in a close area circling, well, it's possible they could they could rub, they could mm. bump, and maybe cause some structural damage. But other than that, you don't hear of many accidents happening like that. The accidents that occur in hang gliding generally are mishaps at launch, whether right next to the ground or landing when they're right next to the ground. Mm. And then, of course, parachutes aren't involved. Right? You know, you're already on the ground.
0: Mm. So one, I guess, in, in the capacity that you operate in now, you're largely a coach and a teacher, um, and, and as it pertains to some of the businesses we, we interface with, the leadership role that folks take on as, you know, foreman, superintendent, you know, le- you know lead is so critical for them to have a really good kind of teacher's heart, mm-hmm. um, which is hard to find. And interestingly, some of the folks who do the things like you do, different, you know, arenas they have just a, a, a passion for teaching people. Mm-hmm. So tell me how that, what role that plays and what you do here and, and why that's important. I
1: think it's extremely important. I mean, there there are a lot of people that are very knowledgeable in certain activities but aren't necessarily a good instructor or a good teacher. It mm-hmm. takes a certain bedside manner. Uh, I was a high school math teacher and a mm-hmm. wrestling coach for 17 years, and I think that certainly paid off on how I learned to deal with people, but the idea of teaching something and And that being such a satisfying idea, definitely rubbed off on the hang gliding side. So when I'm working with people, uh, I've taken on that leadership role. In fact, I I used to run a school called Kitty Hawk Kites on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And down there, I was soon just known as Coach. Hmm. I mean, all the guys called me Coach instead of Steve. It was just kind of, they knew I was a high school wrestling coach, but it just kind of rubbed off there and it kind of stuck. So... Yeah, I do think that somebody that's going to work with groups of people, they're a coach all the way through mm. with doing this activity.
0: Wow. So tell me, uh, as we kind of round this out, you've probably had near misses, close calls. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what you learned from those and how you grew from well, that. Well, you know, there, there are always are
1: close calls, as you'd call it, even for myself or for my students. Uh, you know, out here, the... The most common injury we have, fortunately, is not even a hang gliding injury. It's a pulled hamstring running with the glider at 8 in the morning when they're not stretched out or warmed up enough yet. But, you know, for me, over the years, I must say, I've been very safe in hang gliding. I've had very little what I'll just call incidents. Um, I've never had to really go to the hospital and have anything uh, corrected from a mistake. (laughs) Probably the biggest thing I ever did wrong is I... I was wearing a uh, a little helmet on my head, playing around with the glider, and I had a very nice full-face helmet that would have protected me better. And I tripped and fell into the glider and cut my lip way open, and the helmet would have protected <laughs> it. So I wore this $30 helmet instead of this $200 helmet. And, again, it was just a little equipment choice, and I made a mistake. But normally that wouldn't happen. Mm. Normally you're not going to trip and fall, so that's... That was just something silly that happened, but the point there is when you least expect it, you let your guard down and something happens. Oh. And you know, you can be in much more serious situations and take care of business. But I was, it was a lapse in judgment. And from that point on, um, I've taken more care. Even when you see hang gliders, we generally have wheels on them, you know, big wheels. And with students, the wheels are bigger. And when you get better, the wheels get smaller. Mm. And Some of the expert guys don't put wheels on at all. And one day I had one of my students say, well, Steve, how am I going to know when I'm good enough like you that I don't need wheels anymore? And I just stood there and realized that that should never happen. I said, you'll never be. And I don't know that I've ever flown a hang glider without wheels since.
0: Interesting. (laughs)
1: It just made me think about it. I thought, what kind of example am I showing? If I'm doing things that I say don't do, or if I'm flying a glider in a manner that would be unsafe or using equipment in a different way. I, I try to set a good example and show that this is how you should fly hang glider.
0: Yeah, well, that's uh, that's that's a poignant point because we see that with clients in leadership a lot, where almost uh, this the, a staple of leadership is you're the one who's willing to take more risk. You know, when it comes down to a risky task on a job, you're the one that will step up and do it. Which, to some degree, you've got the experience and the the competence to, if anybody has to do it, to do it. But, but the not so subtle message there is, hey, this is what you got to do to get the job done. So I like your reversion back to, you know, the a, a more of a fundamental level, um, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think that's probably not lost on on your folks.
1: I I hope so. I think one of the one of the biggest things you teach out here, other than the actual flying skills of how to make this work, is all the little peripheral things of, hmm. you know, looking at the weather, looking at the conditions. You know, how do I feel today? Do I even have a headache? Am I hydrated? Um, you know, all those things that can play a role in you making your own good decisions. But definitely demonstrating those decisions to the people. I don't I don't know how many times we've been out here teaching and the wind's starting to pick up and maybe get a little bit cross, and it's getting on the edge, and we put a stop to it. Mm. And I'm hoping, I'd say, look, guys, I know you're not happy that we're stopping right now, but I'd rather have you upset with me for not letting you fly (laughs) instead of being upset with me because I did let you fly when the weather wasn't just right. So we kind of pull the plug on it, knowing, though, that eventually their window will open up and they'll get better, but we don't want them flying in conditions they shouldn't be in, at, you know, yet. We don't want to see what happens. We we wait until they're much more advanced, and then we add the conditions as we think it's safe.
0: Huh? And, and that that's a familiar kind of story there. What mm-hmm. we see is, folks, there's an inflection point that happens on every job, uh, mm-hmm. probably daily, where the conditions just aren't right for the activity that is necessary to be performed. And to delay it would mean delaying the job, frustrating subcontractors or general contractors or customers, vendors, whoever it is to me that's what performing in the risk is really about it's about awareness and competence of what the risks are and understanding how to leverage them for your gain but also recognize when the the the, the cards are stacked against you and it's better to just hang it up and and mm-hmm. try another day to have the the confidence to do that though it takes uh, it takes a, it takes confidence mm-hmm. you know it takes the ability to understand that people are going to be frustrated with you that you're going to be on the wrong end of maybe a tongue lashing from somebody. (laughs) Um, But in the aggregate of engaging with the risk, it's what's necessary to Mm -hmm. to to survive, you know, 47 years in in doing this and you're still going strong. So there's a reason for that, I would suspect. And, And that that attitude is probably par for the course for you.
1: Yeah, we see it out here on a regular basis on the weekends when most of my more experienced guys will come out and you know, we kind of have an idea what might happen weather-wise with the weather forecast, but that's not always what happens. Mm. So guys will show up, and you you can usually pick out the most experienced pilots because they the, they might be the ones looking around and going, now nah, this doesn't look that good. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the, the less experienced guys are looking around and going, what do you mean? It looks fine mm. to me, but there's obviously a reason. And, uh, you know, the, hopefully the, the experience starts to rub off on the guys below. You don't want them to learn the hard way. You know, you want to learn, learn the right way because, you know, hang gliding, I really don't look at it as a dangerous activity. It's just not forgiving. Mm. You know, it's not a forgiving activity. So you can't just haphazardly make those decisions. But when you make good decisions, I mean, like I said, I, I've kept this activity, what I think is a very safe one for most of my life now. And I, I hope it's because I've made good decisions along the way. So, uh,
0: so, I love that. It's not dangerous. It's, I don't think about it as dangerous. It's just not forgiving. And I think taking that attitude towards any work you're doing is probably a healthy, uh, mm-hmm. a healthy perspective to take to to make sure you pull the right levers. And maybe as we as we wrap this up, tell me a bit about the curriculum that you teach out here. How long it takes, and what that looks mm-hmm. like for folks who. Are going? Hmm, that actually sounds like uh, an interesting thing to to try out. I'm my fam- my kids are grown, and now I'm in my, you know, 50s or 60s or 70s, 80s, whatever it is, and I want to I want to lean into this. Or in your 20s, whatever it might be.
1: Okay, well, learning to hang glide. There's a couple of ways to go about it, and a lot of it really depends on the terrain that's around and you know what's available weather-wise. You know, the old traditional way was you're going to meet somebody out on a small hill and you were going to run up and down that hill all day till you were exhausted. <laughs> And you might be up on a 50-foot hill, but as you glide down the hill, you know, you're five feet off the ground gliding down that slope. That was always the traditional method. Uh, as you got better, you just went to bigger hills. Mm-hmm. Then they started to develop the towing methods. We have small airplanes that fly slow enough to tow hang gliders, and by doing so, we have gliders then that we tow that will halt two people. So we launch on wheels behind a small aircraft that's powered, Toe up very high into the air, and now you're flying around with an instructor doing dual training, much like somebody would learn to fly an airplane, until they can solo. Same here. Uh, Our method is kind of in between. We've developed a towing method using very small winches, basically scooter-moped-type vehicles, that we turn into a winch, and we basically pull out some line and rewind it back in with the student being pulled, and with such a low-powered vehicle, we're rewinding the student at a, at a speed that gets them maybe just three, four, five feet above the ground. And we pull them along at five feet above the ground and set them back down. And we do it again and again until they develop these skills. They like it because there's no climbing up and down a hill. And when you're <laughs> standing at the top of a hill looking at the bottom, that can make people nervous. We're out here on flat ground doing that. Mm. So in some ways, it's a very safe way to go over top of some of the other methods that we can do. People feel safe low to the ground when they're doing this. And basically, as we get better at it, people will go higher and higher. When we start a student out, we're going to go through a mini ground school, let them know how the equipment works. We're going to practice just hanging in the harness to get our body and our hands in the right position. And then we even practice running with the glider on flat ground, getting it floating off of our shoulders, feeling how fast do I really have to run to get 50 pounds of hang glider lifting off my shoulders, which for most people, it's kind of a brisk jog and the glider's lifting up. And then we just have to accelerate a little bit more than that to get the glider lifting the human off the ground. Wow! And uh, we'll teach people as low as maybe 100 pounds. If you if you weigh less than that, it's a weight shift activity, and if you don't have much weight, you don't have much control. And we'll take people up to maybe 240, 250 pounds. But the more weight you put on the glider, the faster it has to go. Mm. So you got somebody that weighs 300 pounds. It's unlikely they're going to run fast enough To do the controls they need although it can be done i i had a guy call me one time that did weigh 300 pounds and my next question was well how tall are you he said six eight i said okay well he came in and he looked like you know a professional football player tight end whatever (laughs) and he could run faster than me he got in the air but the you know i don't i'm not sure if the glider liked it very much but you know they aren't going to break from that it's just the glider was very fast and it it made it difficult for him but he did a good job i mean Mm. big people can fly hang gliders it's just most of the gliders that are built are more for an average built person you know an average weight because the gliders have to be built larger or smaller to handle Mm, it that makes sense
0: well steve it's uh thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation not there's similarly one of my favorite things to do and we're recording we're kind of in the moment and and keeping the conversation going and thinking of questions and my favorite thing to do is to go back and listen to these. And <laughs> this one's no exception because I already can pick out, you know, about four or five things that you shared that I thought, man, that has broad application out, even outside of the industry you're in, regardless of the work that's being done, a mindset as it pertains mm-hmm. to engaging and performing in risks that I think folks will really, really learn a lot from and can take and carry with them. So thanks for your time. And, um, and we really appreciate it. It was, a, it was, a, uh, enjoyed speaking with you a lot.
1: Uh, well, I really appreciate it, and you know, I'm sure the United States Hang Gliding Association will appreciate it too.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks for tuning in, folks. We look forward to catching you next, to- next time. Till then, take care.